You're listening to a sermon podcast from Redemption Hill Church, recorded at one of our worship services. Our scripture passage this morning will be from Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Philippians 1, and I'll be reading from verses 1 to 11. Verse 1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more, with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ, through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. These are the true words of the living God. Thank you, Isaac. Good morning, everyone. And it's nearly Happy New Year to you. Uh, We can say that properly tomorrow, but really nice that we can gather together and worship today on the last day of the year. And I want to say, just before we dive in, a huge thank you to everyone who was involved in uh, putting together last weekend's uh, Christmas combined service. Really appreciate all the volunteers, um, staff, uh, Elliot, who pulled the whole thing off. If you know Elliot in Second Congregation, please give him a huge thank you. But I also want to say a huge thanks to all of you who invited friends and family to come. Uh, I thought we were going to have very few people there because it seemed to me that most of Singapore was uh, traveling in Japan. Um, And uh, so I I was amazed. You guys invited friends and family, and I've heard so many encouraging stories of people uh, who've come and were talking about the service afterwards. So well done to everyone uh, for that. All right, so this morning we are starting the book of Philippians, and Philippians is known as a letter of joy. Um, This word joy or rejoicing is mentioned over and over again, and it's a letter in which Paul's heart, his affection, and his joy is most on display. And Paul is writing uh, to this church, we see in uh, verse 1, he's writing to God's people, the church in Christ at Philippi, all the members of the church together with the overseers and the deacons um, together. And this is a church that Paul planted uh, back in Acts chapter 16, and he's now writing to them to encourage them and build them up and strengthen them. And as we'll see over the course of our coming weeks, Paul is writing to them from prison. So he's likely in prison at Rome at the end of Acts, uh, as we uh, remember we got to Acts a couple of months ago. And though Paul is in prison, he is filled with a sense of joy. And friends, we all need a letter like the letter to the Philippians because our world, as we know, is in much need of joy. Now, as we begin the series, I want to encourage us, I want to ask us to open our hearts in a deep way to God and listen to what Paul and God has to say to us through this book because, friends, God has grace for us to give us in this book. If you look at chapter 1, verse 2, 
the letter begins with Paul, as he begins most of his letter, saying, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That means as Paul's writing, as this letter is going to be read to a church, as we are going through this today, God, through Paul, wants to bring grace and peace to us through these words in our lives. And then look at how the letter ends. Chapter 4, verse 23. Paul says, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with your spirit. Do you see what's happening there? It's like Paul saying, God wants to bring you grace and peace through what I'm writing to you. And then once it's been written, as they go, he says, now may God's grace that's come to you, may it be with you, may it go with you from here. And I want to encourage us to open our hearts to hear what it is God is saying to us, that we may receive his grace in our hearts and we may go with it, not just uh, into today, but into all of 2024. So can we pray this morning? Father, we thank you that even as we look at the first two verses of this letter, we see a letter written to a church, and we see your heart of love, a heart that desires to give grace and peace to your people wherever they're at in life. And we, as your people who are gathered in this local congregation here, Redemption Hill Church in Singapore, we open our hearts to you this morning to ask you to pour your grace into them, that we may go from here into the rest of our day and into the rest of next year with your grace in our lives. So let's ask this morning, what is it that really makes you happy? We are very inclined to think of joy or happiness that's found in different P's, whether that's the P of possessions. Uh, we think that if we get more things, we will be happier. Uh, maybe some of you were really putting your hopes on Christmas gifts, or maybe some of the kids that are here, you were so excited for Christmas Day, but maybe now that it's six days later, you can't remember exactly what you got on Christmas. Uh, it seems like a long time away already. Friends, we know statistics show us that actually wealthier nations are not necessarily happier than poorer ones. And statistics of depression and incidences of that uh, do not limit themselves to those who do not have many possessions. In fact, often it's correlated the other way. Maybe we think happiness or joy is going to be found in the place that we're at. Our job, if we just can get a better job, work in a, in a different place, we'll be far happier. Or maybe if we lived in a better country, a place that wasn't so hot, a place that you didn't have to have aircon on all the time, uh, that would make us happier. Or maybe we had a better house. We weren't staying where we were living if it had more space or maybe if we had better holidays. Friends, is joy, is God's joy really tied to those kinds of things? What about most of the world's population that doesn't have mobility and can't simply uh, uh, move around like that? Are they relegated to a life without joy? Or maybe we think we just need better people in our lives. We need happier people. We need to get rid of all these toxic friendships or toxic relationships we have. If we had better colleagues better extended family, better friends. We just need a change. We need new people. And friends, you know, we're inclined to think the grass is greener on the other side. Uh, and this even applies to relationships. When we often get into relationships in a different place, we discover people are the same everywhere. Even in the letter to the Philippians, this letter of joy where Paul has so much affection, what does he say in chapter 4, verse 2? These two people, Yodia and Syntyche, they're fighting, they're in conflict, even in Philippi, this place where there's so much joy. But friends, Christian joy is far deeper than just about circumstances. 
Christian joy is something that is supposed to reverberate deep within us because it resonates with something good and true in this world. C.S. Lewis said that all joy reminds. It's never a possession. It's always a desire for something longer ago or further away or still about to be. What does Lewis mean by this? I think he's saying that true joy taps into deep desires that all of us have about what the world is meant to be like, what we long for. It's kind of like when we do weddings, I often say that at weddings there's a kind of joy in the air. There's something about a wedding that makes people feel like what's happening here is a sign of how the world should be. A couple pledging to love one another till death do them part making vows. All of us see the love that's on display at a wedding, and we say, yes, there's something right about that. All of us long to be loved in that kind of a way. And joy is when we get in touch with some of those kinds of emotions. Today, we're going to see the surprising nature of Christian joy. We have three simple points. The surprising nature of Christian joy, the source of this joy, and how to cultivate this joy. So let's dive right in. We saw a few moments ago, many of us think that different P's, possessions, people, places, will be things that will give us joy. But what about Paul? Paul here is in another P. Paul is in prison, uh, which is hardly a recipe for joy, right? I mean, it's a bad place. He doesn't have any possessions. The people, I don't think, are trying to make him comfortable. And yet, Paul writes this letter, verse 3 to 4, And Paul, right from the beginning, seems to be overflowing with a sense of thankfulness and joy. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always, in every prayer of mine for you, making my prayer with joy. Friends, this is a man who we're going to see again and again is bubbling full of a deep kind of joy. If I was in prison, I'd probably be thanking God maybe for good circumstances, maybe better food or getting out soon, or some perks that I had uh, got, but not Paul. Paul here, friends, is rejoicing at seeing Christ at work in the Philippians. Now, I want you to follow me and to see where we see this. We're going to put up verse 5 to 7, and uh, we'll have a look. Firstly, Paul says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, making my prayers with joy, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So Paul is rejoicing... I want you to follow the argument because he sees in the Philippians that there's something inside of them where they have taken a hold of the gospel, Christ's done a work in them, and they are partnering with Paul. Secondly, we see uh, verse 6, Paul says, I'm sure of this, that he who began, that's God that's done this work inside of them, will bring it to completion. So there's a work of God, not just a work of God uh, for them, he's not just talking about Jesus dying on the cross, but he who began a work in you. So God is, Christ is at work inside of them, and he's going to bring this to completion, and this is leading Paul to rejoice. And some of us are probably thinking, what is this partnership in the gospel and this work that the Philippians are doing as a result of God's work? Verse 7 uh, gives us some clue. It's right for me to feel this way about you, because I hold you in my heart, for you are partakers with me of grace. We share in this common faith, he's saying, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Paul is referring here to what he's mentioned in verse 5, that these Philippians are partners or have partnered with him even in his suffering because of the gospel. Now, we don't get a lot of color in these verses about exactly what that looked like, 
But if you flip over in your Bibles uh, to chapter 4, verse 14, I've uh, put up on the slide for us, Paul actually shows us what this partnership looked like. He says, it was kind of you to share my trouble. So these people came to faith, and then they took ownership with Paul. You Philippians yourselves know in the beginning of the gospel, that's probably Acts 16 when they first came to faith, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. He really is talking here about financial gain, financial support that this church has given Paul on his missionary journeys. No church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. So let's try and put this together. In the beginning, the Philippians are sharing in Paul's trouble. They are concerned for him in prison later on when he goes to prison. When he leaves them, they are financial partners of him and his ministry. So this is, this is how they share in partnership with Paul in his imprisonment and in his suffering. This is a, these are a group of people who have been bound together with Paul, are caring about the gospel, caring about the gospel ministry going forth through them, and are willing to put their lives and their resources behind it to support Paul's ministry. And Paul says something fascinating that's important for understanding the passage in verse 17 there. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Now, I don't have a slide for this, but if you go back to chapter 1 in your Bibles or on your phones, and you have a look in verse, I think it's 10, sorry, verse 11, we'll get to these verses in a moment, but Paul is praying for the, to be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Friends, what I want us to see here is what Paul is rejoicing at, what, Paul, what makes Paul happy, what fills him with gladness, is that God has done a deep work inside of these Philippians that makes them uh, rejoice with Paul, that makes them partner with Paul, that is producing spiritual fruit inside of them. And this is what Paul is getting excited about. So we can say Paul is rejoicing at seeing the fruit of Christ's work in these Philippians. And their fruit shows that God is at work in them and they're going to be ready to stand uh, before Jesus on the day of the Lord. So let's put up verse 6 and 10. One of the references that you may have seen so far is this phrase, the day of the Lord. And Paul mentions this in two verses. Verse 6, I'm sure that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And then in verse 10 he says, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. So, Again, zooming out, Paul's excited. He's full of joy. Why? He sees evidence that these people are in Christ, that God is doing a work inside of them. He knows God's begun something. He's going to bring it to completion. And he knows they're going to be able to stand blameless before God on the day of Christ. Now, let's think about this. What exactly is this day of Christ that Paul is referring to? I as a pastor, know that when you talk about the day of judgment or the day of Jesus Christ or Jesus' return, there are a number of people who feel, well, let me ask you, how do you feel when I mention the day of Jesus? How many of you feel super excited? All right, I see that hand. Thank you. All right. How many of you feel super nervous? You can be honest. All right, we have some honest people here as well. Thank you. When we talk about the, 
the, the day of Christ and Jesus returning, there's a whole mix of emotions. And some of us think about this in a slightly negative way. We hear this is a day of judgment. Some of us think about the day of Jesus as being a little bit like a root canal that maybe you really are not looking forward to, but you just know the pain is so bad you have to go through it. But friends, I want to put it to us this morning that this is not the way that God's people should think about this. Now, no judgment to anyone who raised their hands. I have to remind myself and preach the gospel to myself about the day of judgment because I can find myself thinking, man, what's it going to be like? But when I read the New Testament and I see what God's people and what Paul says and how Jesus speaks about that day for God's people, there's a very different way that the Bible speaks about it. The New Testament, friends, talks about God's people longing for that day. Paul says, or John, and all of us who have longed for his appearing. Paul speaks in Thessalonians about our great hope, the hope we have on that day. The Psalms, friends, talk about how the trees of the field are clapping for joy, waiting. They're going to rejoice at that day. Paul says in Romans that all of creation is groaning and longing in expectation for that day when Jesus comes. This is a day, friends, where Jesus is going to return and certainly is going to judge all evil in this world and is going to gather up all of his people and gather them into his kingdom where he will rule and reign over us forever and ever. Friends, this is a day where Jesus will put everything that is wrong in this world right. He will fix our hearts. He will fix our broken longings. He will correct all injustice. And therefore, this is a day God's people long for and are excited about. Three very quick analogies here. Uh, when I was thinking about this this week, I, I'm not sure why, why I was, but I was thinking when I was a small boy, uh, before we used to go to school, so in my school in South Africa, we used to wear these like smart black like formal shoes to school every, uh, every day. And that meant that Sunday night before you went to school, you'd have to go and polish your shoes and shine your shoes, right? So we had to, to do this with my dad every Sunday night, and there's always inspection on a Monday morning. And uh, if you don't polish your shoes and you arrive with like scruffy shoes on a Monday morning for inspection, it's going to be really bad for you. Now, everyone's experience of inspection was very different. If you polish your shoes on Sunday night, you're like looking forward to it. It's like there's no fear at all. But if you didn't, it's not going to be very good for you. The day of judgment is the same thing. There are some people, friends, for whom this is going to be a day of wailing and gnashing of teeth as people disregarded God, lived in sin, dismissed him in his word, did not take a hold of the hope of salvation that is offered to us in Jesus. The Bible says this will be a terrifying day. But for those who are clothed, not in their own righteousness, not who have lived good lives or just given to the poor, but have put their faith in Jesus who died for our sins and rose again, this is a day of rejoicing. Or I think about when I was uh, in boarding school where sometimes kids would be making a racket at night and the hostel master is like outside and there's no supervision and it's just very, very noisy and I'm trying to get some sleep. I was often making a noise, but let's just theoretically think about the time when I was behaving well and not making a noise. And then you hear the discipline master walking down the corridor. If you're trying to get some sleep, you're rejoicing. You're like, finally, there's going to be some law and order here and all these noisy kids are going to be shut up and we're going to be able to get some sleep. When, when, when that discipline master comes, I mean, if you've been, if you're the one like 
caught doing something wrong, it's not going to be good for you. But if you're longing for some peace and quiet, you are rejoicing at that day. Or I think about a certain situation where I remember as a boy feeling incredibly scared. Incredibly scared, not safe. And I remember in one such circumstance, my dad arriving. My dad arriving, I saw his car drive up. And his door opened. And he climbed out and he began to walk toward me. And I just ran for him. I ran and I grabbed him. And I felt safe. Friends, Paul here makes two references to the day of the Lord. And those who are in Jesus are longing for that day. Where our sorrows and our tears and our fears will be washed away. And Paul is working. Paul is laboring here. Friends, to make that day a day of joy for the Philippians. Paul wants that day for you and I to be a day of gladness and joy and rejoicing. And Paul sees in the Philippians, because he sees fruit in their lives, he sees their generosity. He sees sees that they are partakers of grace. They enter into partnership with him. Paul says, I can see that God's begun a good work in you. And because he's begun that good work in you, I can see he's going to bring it to completion. And I am filled with such joy. This is a joy that is shared and multiplied as others get to experience this. Paul is laboring for this work, friends. The fruit in their lives is the best picture of this world being made right. So the surprising joy, the surprising nature of Christian joy, friends, is seeing evidence of Jesus formed in others. Because this is proof, friends, that they are entering into and are going to enter into earth's highest joys for eternity. Friends, is this what we rejoice in? Is this what makes us happy? We're so often inclined to rejoice in our own circumstances or our possessions. Or maybe we could think about this by what we get unhappy about. Maybe you're very happy on your holiday until you open Instagram and see where everyone else is. And suddenly when we see them and their joy, we can't even rejoice with them because we are not even able to celebrate with them because we're not even primarily just looking at them. On social media, we're looking at ourselves through them and through the experience. So it's actually all about us, and we can't even rejoice in them. But Paul here sees other people, not to compare himself to them and either feel happy or sad, but Paul sees others to see Christ in them and feels an overwhelming sense of joy. Friends, how do you see people? I watched a a very wonderful and edifying clip online a couple of weeks ago that was doing the rounds. Uh, It's a a pastor in the UK. He was formerly a lawyer, uh, a barrister. And he was talking, and he was talking about how he ended up becoming a pastor. And he said he was working and serving as um, a barrister, a lawyer in the UK. And he would kind of go to church, was a believer, but didn't really love the church too much, would just sit at the back, uh, not too involved. And then one Sunday, someone in the church came and said, we need you to help and volunteer. Can you be in charge of the coffee station, serving everyone coffee after service? And he was like, me, coffee? No, I don't want to do that at all. He's like, I'm a barrister, not a barista. Um, and he was like quite put out, but you know, being British, he didn't know how to decline, so he just said yes. 
And so the next Sunday, he goes and he starts serving and getting involved. And he, he talks and he says, you know, week after week, as I started serving coffee, he said the most amazing thing happened. As I stood there Sunday after Sunday, just handing cups of coffee to people, I started to notice people. I started to see the people, the diverse people that came that were worshiping Jesus. I began to, he said, I began to fall in love with him. I began to see how special the church was. These people from different walks of life and backgrounds and experiences who came together, he said, God did something inside of me. He said, I began to love the church so much, I changed my whole career. I wanted to give myself to this people that God was at work in, that God was forming Christ in, that God was shaping. Friends, I know some of you think I stand at the doors on a Sunday to uh, see who's arriving late on a Sunday. I, I promise you I don't do that. I know some of you, you know, it feels like the walk of shame as you, uh, you know, come in at 9.15 and there's Simon at the doors. It feels terrible. Can I tell you, one of the things I miss most when I'm like away and not at church on Sunday is not preaching. It's standing at the doors. It's one of the things I love the most, seeing those people that God has saved and gathered and drawn together in our church. So friends, two questions for you this morning. I want to ask you, if Paul, if Paul were to look at your, if Paul were to meet you today, is it possible that Paul may have more joy at you than you even have about yourself? May Paul see some evidence of God's work in you and be, and be so thrilled and grateful and, and filled with joy. And you're like, what's there to be happy about? My life sucks. But Paul looks at it, he's like, no, Christ had work in you. It may be small, the fruit may be very little, but he's rejoicing. He knows ultimate joy is one day coming to you. And he sees the fruit of Jesus in your life. Well, the second question, friends, what are you longing for in others? What do you desire what do you desire to see? That they'll just meet your needs or is it that Christ is in them? Now we're going to look very quickly at our last two points, the source of this Christian joy. Friends, where does this joy come from? I want you to notice what Paul says about his affection and his love for these Philippians and how he cares for them. Paul uses really strong language here. In verse 7, uh, he says, I hold you in my heart. Verse 8, Paul says, I yearn for you. I mean, this is like pretty deep language. Paul really loves these people. Now, the question is, what kind of affection does Paul have for them? And where does this come from? And verse 8 gives us the answer. This is stunning. Paul says, I yearn for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Now, how many of you think Paul is exaggerating here? Don't raise your hand. <laughs> really, Paul? You love these Philippians with the love of Jesus? I yearn for you with the affection of Christ? This word, affection, is the word compassion, the word that's used of Jesus when he sees the crowds. Paul is saying here, friends, he has the affection of Jesus inside of him. Jesus is at work in Paul, sharing Jesus' own loves and affections. Friends, again, let's compare this to ourselves. What kind of affections do we have? The feelings we have, we often feel a sense of self-pity. Maybe we look at all of our lives through the lens of our own circumstances. Paul here could have majored on his own circumstances. Remember, he's in prison. But Paul's affections and his compassion is for the Philippians. Now, some of you are thinking, gee, what's it like to love someone with the love of Jesus? How does Paul get this? 
Let's see. Friends, I want to put it to us that Paul gets his joyful affection because Paul's a Christian, because he has union with Christ. There are a couple of clues to this. Philippians, as we're going to see over the coming weeks, majors on this theme that we are in Jesus, that we are found in him, that we have union with Christ. I can't talk about that today in too much detail, but we see a few clues here to something that Paul is going to make explicit throughout the book. Chapter 1, verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus. Christians are those who are placed into Jesus. Verse 6. I'm sure of this. He who began a good work in you. There's something of Jesus that's inside of us. God is working in us through his spirit. Verse 8. God is my witness. How I yearn for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Jesus' affection is inside of us. Now, friends, we don't have time to look at the rest of the book, but I'll make one connection here because the rest of Philippians talks about this union with Jesus again and again. But in chapter 2, verse 7, Paul says, Jesus emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And that word servant in chapter 2, verse 7 is the same word as chapter 1, verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Throughout the letter of Philippians, there is a deep connection between Jesus and Jesus' people. Christ dwells inside of his people. Christ's people dwell inside of him. We are in him. And if we have this union with Jesus, if he is at work in us with his spirit, what is he like? Chapter 2 shows us, friends, Jesus was glad to humble himself and suffer. Why did Jesus suffer? Chapter 2 tells us he emptied himself. He took the form of a servant and humbled himself to the point of death on a cross. Why? So that we would be sanctified, so we would be saved, so we would know him. We would know ultimate joy for all time. Hebrews chapter 12 tells us that for the joy that was set before Jesus, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. What was the joy that was set before Jesus? Act, uh, Psalm 16 tells us, joy forevermore at God's presence. The joy of having you and I gathered together with God on that great day and experiencing that gladness and joy for all eternity. And Jesus sees that joy and Jesus says, I will lay down my life and suffer and die on the cross. I'll take the form of a bondservant so that you, yes, you and I together today, the saints gathered at RHC, can enter into that joy. And Jesus, who doesn't consider his circumstances, but will put himself in far worse circumstances than prison, go, go to death for our sins, will do that for the joy set before him, your and my joy. And Paul has this Jesus dwelling inside of him. Friends, you know what this means? This means our joy and our fellowship with others at RHC and as Christians is deeply related to our fellowship in Jesus. Sometimes in churches, people think that churches are like places where like-ish minded people gather together and then you go to church, particularly in like a larger church like ours, you find people that are like-minded, and you just connect with people who are very similar to you. So they're in the same industry as you. They've got the same number of kids as you or similar ages. You all support the same football team. You're all in the same profession. Whatever. Whatever floats your boat, right? Whatever you're like, I click with this person. And then we end up treating, wow, 
end of the year, we're having New Year celebrations early. Whatever, what happens is you essentially treat the church just like a social club where you find people who are like-minded and then you click with them and they become your friends. Paul and the New Testament talks very differently. What binds us together is a common experience in Christ. Christ has put us together. He saved us of our sins. He's given us a common love, a common joy. And this means we connect with people with radically different backgrounds. You can be friends with someone from the same football, who supports the same football club as you. That's not a problem. That's not a crime to do. But we have a deeper fellowship around Jesus and around what he's done for us. And this means we cultivate this relationship through, our fr- through cultivating this relationship we have with Jesus. Friends, I sometimes have people as a pastor who say to me, you know, I used to go to this church. Now I don't believe in Jesus and I've like not come to church for six months or nine months. And it feels like all the friends I made are like, like our friendship's not exactly the same anymore. As though they expected those friendships to continue as though nothing would change at all. Well, friends, our relationships here are primarily because of what Christ has done for us and how Jesus has made us one in him. And that's the basis of our fellowship with one another. This means if we walk away from that, something is going to change about the basis of our relationship. Now, we will hopefully love those who walk away. We are committed to them. We want to be friendly to them. We want to pursue them. But that friendship begins to take on a slightly different shape. Now, in those friendships, we're really concerned about them coming to know Jesus, sharing the faith with them. I want us to see what Paul makes very plain in 1 John chapter 1. He actually says this, he makes this idea very explicit. Uh, Next slide. In 1 John 1, Paul says, That which we've seen and heard, we proclaim to you. This is Jesus, his death and his resurrection. So that you may have fellowship, the sharing in Christ with us. Indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son. Paul is saying here, Christians have fellowship with God, and when others come to know God, we have a combined relationship and fellowship together. And that's the relationship we're inviting you into. And Paul says, we're writing these things so our joy may be complete. Do you see how exactly the same ideas as what's in Philippians are mentioned there in John? that we have fellowship, a partnership in Christ, and this leads to this amazing sense of joy. Now, friends, if it's true that our fellowship can be lessened if we are walking away from Christ, so our fellowship, our relationships can be strengthened and cultivated if we remain in Him and close to Him. And this is our final point, cultivating this Christian joy. Friends, how do we cultivate our joy? We cultivate our joy by focusing on our shared union with Christ. We see people as Paul does. I want to encourage us as a church, when you see any evidence of fruit in someone's life, why don't you notice it? Affirm it. Encourage it. Hey, I saw how you were in a really difficult situation last week, and the way you responded was so gracious. You could have got uptight, frustrated, self-righteous. You were kind and compassionate. Well done. I really see the work of Jesus inside of you. When you see someone sacrificing, when you see people serving a church on a Sunday, praying for, for others. Friends, this is evidence of God being at work inside of others. We can cultivate this by asking other people questions. How did you come to faith? What's God been saying to you? Now, all these ways are ways that we can cultivate this. But Paul is in, Paul's doing some of these things, even though he's in jail. 
But there's one thing Paul can really do even though he's in jail. And this is something I want us to end with. The whole body of this text that we've looked at today is framed by what? It's framed by prayer. In chapter one, verse four, I thank my God in my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine, making my prayer with joy. And then have a look in verse nine to 11. And it is my prayer that. So prayer is framing this entire thing. And Paul is telling them what he's praying, why he's praying. And Paul is now going to end off by telling them what he's praying for them. Paul is praying for them. And verse nine shows us that what Paul is praying for is perfectly in line with what he's already been rejoicing in, their sanctification. Let's have a look at verse 9 to 11. Verse 9 gives us the content of Paul's prayer. Verse 10 to 11 gives us why he's praying it. So verse 9, it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with all knowledge and all discernment. And then verse 10 to 11, why is he praying this? So that you may approve what is excellent and be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Paul is praying something specifically so their joy and gladness in the day of Christ will be maximized and their fruit will grow. What is it that Paul is praying? Paul prays for two things. He wants their love to grow big like the love of Jesus. He prays that their love will abound more and more. Friends, Paul is, is wants their love to become so large that these people themselves become, their, their own view of themselves is small, and they love Jesus, and they love one another more and more and more. And he's saying he wants them to love more and more, not just more people, but he wants love to be the medium through which they relate to all things. So when they go to work, I know some of you think you cannot think about your job through the lens of love. Family is family, church is church, your friends are friends, but work is like another whole thing. I want to put it to you that that's not what Paul means here. Paul doesn't mean, I pray that your love will abound more and more in every sphere of your life except for your vocation. Paul is praying that love will be the medium through which they conduct every part of their lives. Friends, only what's done for love, 1 Corinthians 13, is going to stand on that day. Many of you are giving a lot of your hours to work. I don't think you want a large part of your life to be dismissed and not to count for anything on that day of judgment because it wasn't done in love. Now, I know I'm like opening a, a can of worms here, and some of you are thinking, how on earth do I be a lawyer or a finance person with love? That's a great question for you to ask. But you can ask that question. And that's a valid question because God gave you a career, Genesis 1, to have dominion and to steward creation and to live for God's glory and to love other people. And then if, if, if your career cannot be done with any kind of love, it's probably time to think about a different career. And I'm not taking pot shots at any of the standard careers we have here. Because the fields that most of you are in, unless you're doing something illegal, can be done with love. It's not just the doctors and the pastors here who can love people. The way that you go about your work and your business can be done with love. And Paul is praying here. This is, this is what he's praying. 
He's not just praying that at church on a Sunday they'll love one another. He's praying that their lives will, will love one another. He says, my prayer that your love may abound more and more. And secondly, Paul wants their love to be purer and more discerning like Jesus, with knowledge and all discernment. Friends, Paul wants these people to love in a way that will be purer and more and more in line with Jesus' love. I will not share too many details about this, but I was recently having a conversation with one of my children about something that I felt was supposed to be helpful. And at some point in the conversation, they looked at me and they said, are you scolding me? And I was like, I think I am actually. (laughs) And then I had to explain, I'm sorry. I'm really trying to help. I'm really trying to love you. But what I thought was loving was clearly not coming across that way. It was not really being helpful. Paul says, don't just have good intentions. Paul wants our love here to, our love to abound with knowledge and all discernment, with wisdom. God, how do you want me to love this person? What does love really look like in this situation? My friends, I want to encourage us. This is where Paul gets to. Paul's praying this way. And before we close, I want to show you one other thing to encourage you to pray. Prayer like this, friends, shapes the prayer. It shapes us as well as making an impact on other people's lives. This means we need to pray these kinds of prayers for our own sake as much as for others' sake. When we pray for others, yes, of course it shapes other people. It makes them more sanctified. We'll get to that later on in Philippians. But when you pray a certain kind of prayers for someone, it also shapes how you think about them and God and faith. For example, if you're only praying for your friend to become rich, to, you know, like win 4D or whatever, and, or like land those business deals and get as rich as possible, you're thinking that's what's going to make me happy too. But when you're praying like Paul's praying, that their love would abound more and more with more knowledge and discernment so that they will be pure and blameless before the day of Christ. You're not only actually having a benefit of seeing God do that work inside of them, but you're shaping, friends, how you think about life and about this world. And friends, I want to encourage you. There, is very, there are very few things that are as joyful as praying and interceding for someone and then seeing God be at work in their hearts and their lives. Two quick accounts to wrap up and encourage you. As a pastor, I walk with, with many people. And many people share things that are very difficult. They share things that are difficult about marriage, about life. It is one of the most encouraging things where you have a pastoral conversation with someone who's thinking of throwing in the towel in a relationship, a marriage, and you speak, you encourage, and then you pray, and you pray. And they come back a couple of weeks later, and there's a softening. There's a softening. There's a love. There's a willingness to be tender and forgiving and merciful. Friends, it is the most glorious thing. You see the fruit of Jesus. And one other story, back to my boarding school days. There was a, there was a kid in, in boarding school. He did not like me very much. We had been at the same school. I was, I was in one school from like primary one to primary 12, like the end of JC effectively. You do 12 years. And this guy was in my class for most of those years, and he did not like me for most of those years. And one of the reasons he didn't like me was because I was a Christian. 
And he used to mock me and tease me about being a Christian for like 12 years. And it just got worse and worse over the years. I was like, can you give a guy a break, really? But when I was in about year 10 or 11, like God really met me in a deep way that shaped my life in a very profound way. And one of the things I decided to do was I decided to make a list of all the people that had given me the hardest time at school, all my enemies. I had quite a few. And I was going to pray like mad for them. And I made this list. There were like 10 names on that list. I just prayed for them. Lord, save them. Save them. Help them to open their eyes to, to, to see you. And I just prayed for them and prayed for them and prayed for them. Now, friends, I just mentioned prayer changes them and it changes us. Those prayers, friends, shaped me in a deep way. Those prayers made me love those people. Those prayers over the years, they took out the malice, the anger, the desire for revenge, and they only filled me with a sense of love for those people that really had made my life very miserable. And time is not up yet, but those prayers were partially effective. About three or four years after planning this church in Singapore, I got an email out of the blue from one person. I won't tell you his name in case he's listening to this. But I got an email from one person. That one guy, I was at school for 12 years. He said, you will not believe. He said, I, his letter, he said, I'm writing to number one to tell you, tell you something and do something. I want to tell you I've become a Christian. Number two, I want to apologize to you. Friends, what a joyful, joyful letter. Jesus met him, saved him, redeemed him. This is the joy of our prayers, friends. I'm going to have joy for all eternity with this guy. It's a joy that's shared. It's what Paul's inviting us into. Can we close our eyes and pray? Father, your word tells us today that there is grace for us in this letter. It is a grace that some of us may not see or want or desire, but it is a grace that you plan to give us to shape our hearts and our lives. I pray that you would shape us over the coming weeks through this letter, that we would see who you are, what you are like, what it's like to live for you, that we may become more and more like you and be able to stand blameless in Christ on the day of judgment. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon podcast from Redemption Hill Church. You can find more of our sermons online at www.rhc.org.sg.